I grew up going to church, and if you had asked me during those growing up years, what is a Christian, and if I am a Christian, I would have had a puzzled look on my face. I might have said, what kind of question is that? Of course I'm a Christian. I go to church, a Christian church, and I'm not a Buddhist or a Muslim or something else, so I must be a Christian. But I couldn't give you any more specifics than that. In the simplest of terms, one way the Scripture would answer that question, are you a Christian or what is a Christian, would be to say that a Christian is someone who follows Jesus Christ. In this scene in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. These two brothers knew what Jesus meant when he said, when he commanded, invited them to follow him. They did it in a very literal, physical sense. They left the family business of fishing and went and spent the next two to three years following Jesus Christ, hanging out with him, listening to him, observing him. They knew what it meant to follow, but do we? And if I were to ask you, or if a friend were to ask you, what is a Christian? What does it mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What would you say? How would you answer? We're beginning just a brief series, a three-week sermon series uh, uh, on the foundations of the faith to help us dig into what it really means to follow Jesus. Christ on a very foundational level. And each week we'll focus on one key word. Today we'll focus on the word believe. Next week on be baptized. In week three, it'll be on belong. So in three weeks, we obviously can't cover much of what it means to follow Jesus, but we hope to give us a few of the core aspects of what that looks like, not only for our sake, but so that we can help others to help establish a solid foundation of Christianity in our souls. So this morning, we're going to focus on that one key word, believe. And fundamentally, it's not, we'll get into this, but it's not about believing a system of religion. It's not about believing that I should go to church on Sunday, which you should believe that, that's good, but it's it's fundamentally not about those, necessarily the activities Fundamentally, it's about believing in a person, in someone, to follow a person, and that person, of course, is Christ. That's where the word Christianity, Christianity comes from. So our core text this morning from the Bible is from the Gospel of John, and you, can, you may open up there, especially we're going to focus in on chapter 1 particularly. So you can open up a Bible. There's some hard copies, some house Bibles on the chairs near you. John would be about three-fourths of the way through the Bible. 
if you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, that's, that's where we are. It's the fourth of four Gospels, stories of Christ. And we're going to examine here who Jesus is. In just this very short text, we're going to examine who Jesus is and what he did, particularly as it's revealed in his names. And I love this theme, the names of God and the names of Christ. I think about it all the time. And in this case today, it's the names and the titles ascribed to Jesus and by Jesus. And they're very profound and they tell us a great deal of who he is and what he was about. And so let's read a portion of chapter 1 in, in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In him, that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist, different than the author here of the Gospel of John. He, John, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not, John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a fascinating passage to tell us so much about Jesus. Let's start in verse 1. It says, I'll read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here, Jesus Christ is assigned a name, and His name is the Word. And I remember reading that for many years, and I thought, well, that's a strange name, the Word. Well, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, and we still have many ancient copies of those original writings in Greek. And in the Greek language, the word word here is the Greek for logos or logos, depending how you pronounce it. But logos means word. That's just what it means. It means word or speech. Like we call this the Word of God. It's the speech. It's what God is declaring. And in any language, words express thoughts. What's going on in my mind, in my heart? They express my thoughts. So in that sense, Jesus expresses the very words, the very heart, the very intention of God the Father. 
So in the, in the deepest, truest, fullest sense, Jesus reveals God Almighty in heaven. And so when we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. And what's fascinating about the Greek word logos is that in the Apostle John's, in this, in this day, in this first century time, the word logos was already a well-known term, an intriguing one. In the centuries before Christ, even as far back as the 6th century B.C., Greek philosophers used this word logos broadly to describe uh, the divine, to describe the unseen world, the origin of life, and trying to come up with an understanding of good and evil. They're basically, they're trying to explain life, trying to explain why are we here. And so philosophers back over the centuries, and even still today, gave it a wide variety of possible meaning. But there was some commonality to their views on what this logos was, this word. In general, back in those days, from a philosophical perspective, logos referred to some sort of rational principle of the universe, some creative energy, and that all things on earth came from this logos. People derived their wisdom from logos. Some viewed this logos as personal, some viewed it as impersonal, like a principle or a force. And thinking of the force, if you know anything about Star Wars, you know about the force. And in Star Wars, the force is not a person but it's a pervasive energy in living things that gives life and guides life. And in the 1970s, when George Lucas was creating Star Wars, this force, thinking of the ancient Lagos, was exactly what he had in mind. Something guiding this universe. Well, in the first century here, when John wrote this gospel, people were searching, as they are today, they were searching for answers to life, for our origins, for the purpose of our existence, for an explanation of the cosmic battle between good and evil. But the problem in that century, as well as in ours today, is that there were no definitive answers to those questions. So in this gospel, in the very first verse, John testifies boldly, audaciously, this logos of God that you've all been wondering about and searching for for centuries, he's here. He is divine. He existed in the beginning. He created the universe and he has come descending from heaven to earth. Earth has been invaded by heaven. And so by calling Jesus the Logos of God, the Word of God, John is blowing the minds of the first century world. What was previously unknown and merely speculated on has now been fully revealed. Last week, last Sunday, Pastor Matt read this verse from Acts 17, and let's read it. Paul is in the city of Athens, uh, very, the very center of pagan philosophy. 
And he stood in the middle of the Areopagus. This is the place where philosophers gathered and just talked and talked about the latest ideas. And he said to them, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So both Paul and John in this gospel are saying this logos you've been searching for, that you've been wondering about, about where we came from, about what's guiding this world, about what wisdom is, about why this battle between good and evil, this logos you've been wondering about, He's not some force. He's a person. He's real. He's been on this earth. And his name is Jesus. So John would say to us, instead of saying, may the force be with you, he would say, may the logos of God, the word of God be with you. There's powerful implications here. And importantly, related to that, John says that this Lagos created all things. Look at verse 3. All things were created through him, this word. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. Few things could ever be said that are more foundational to our lives than this statement right here. In one simple sentence, John clears up centuries of philosophical con confusion and darkness. He says, we are here because the Lagos of God created us, created this world, the heavens And if we want purpose, a reason for our existence, it begins here. The Logos of God has created us, and He's created us for a reason. The Apostle Paul has similar words for us in a letter he wrote called Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For everything was created by Him, that is, by Jesus the Word, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We have been created by the Logos of God for the Logos of God. The implications here are staggering, and they define, they give direction to our lives. We are not here by some cosmic accident, nor by human accident. We're not here by luck or fate. We're not here to live life however we choose, to live out our dreams. That is not why we are here. We are here for the purposes of our Creator, Jesus, the Word of God. Many years ago, when I was 19 years old, I believed in Jesus Christ, and I 
very slowly over the next few months, began to understand why I was even here on earth. I don't even know before I'd even thought about why I was here. I didn't really think about a purpose for life, but I began at that point, and I realized I'm here for him. Jesus determines the purpose for my life. So when we hear Jesus' commands, like in Matthew 4.19, where he tells his disciples, follow me, this is why he made us for him. He has creator rights over us. We often talk about our rights. We demand our rights. Jesus has rights over you. And this doesn't answer every question we may have about the specifics of how we should live and where we should go and what we should do, but we have to begin here with the very reason for our existence. So this Jesus, John is revealing, he's the logos of God, he's the creator. And third, he's the life. In this brief passage, there are two other terms that are assigned to Jesus. One is life and the other is light. We'll look at them one at a time. Verse 4 says, in him was life. I think John is obviously referring to physical life. He created all things. He just got done explaining that. Life comes from him. But I think it's clear throughout the gospel of John that he intends this to mean spiritual life, eternal life, which is used many times at least 17, 18 times that I could find in this gospel, the phrase eternal life. What John is saying, life doesn't come from this impersonal Star Wars midi-chlorian in our, in our cells or from any other imagination of the philosopher's mind. Rather, life itself, life in this earth and life to come comes from the very personal Logos of God who came as the incarnate God, Emmanuel. It's another name. Later in John chapter 11, Jesus himself elaborates on this name of life. He said to Martha, 11, 25, 26, he said to Martha, who is a family friend, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes, there's that word, our focus this morning, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? We'll get back to that last question there. But first, Jesus says he's the source of life itself forever and ever. Death, it's not a problem because he's the resurrection. It's more than just he's going to resurrect or he knows how to spell resurrection. He is the resurrection. He's the conqueror of death. And it's crucial for us to know that we have an enemy and our worst enemy is not some evil tyrant who's in some crazy country on the other side of the world or in our own country, whatever we think. Our worst enemy is not a disease. Our worst enemy is death itself. 
But death is no problem for the Logos of God, for He is the resurrection and the life. And He has conquered death by rising unto a new eternal glorified body, forever changed and giving us hope. And He will raise His followers someday soon from the dead. Let me give you one of many implications of Jesus as the resurrection and the life, and that is his followers need to fear death no longer. We need to fear death no more. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, verse 14, Now since the children of flesh and blood have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He carried our humanity so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. And listen to these beautiful words. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. He's come to free us from our fear, this slavery to this fear. And many of us in this room, I suspect, live in fear of death. We're afraid of heart attacks. We're afraid of cancer. We're worried about some madman with a rifle. We're consumed with fear of car accidents and strange diseases. But Jesus' followers, those who believe in him, have been set free from slavery to such fears. Because he's the resurrection and the life. This is your Christianity. So Jesus is the logos of God. He's the creator. He's the life. And fourth, he is the light. Back to verse 4. He says, in him, in the logos of God was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. Throughout scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, the word light typically refers to God and all who he is, his glory, his majesty, his holiness. And darkness, conversely, refers to all of, that's anti-God, sin and destruction. And the scriptures make it clear that we are in a spiritual darkness. It's like we're spiritually blind, a condition far, far worse than being physically blind. And Jesus, the Logos of God, came not only to extinguish the impacts of darkness, but to actually be the extinguisher. Jesus himself said beautifully in chapter 8 of John, Verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me, there's that word again, follow. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. A message of the Bible is that our sin, our rebellion against God darkens our eyes. It blinds us and we can't see Clearly, we can't see God. We can't see in this life. Spiritually, we're blinded. 
But to all who follow Jesus, he is the light of the world to open our blind eyes that we can finally see him and see reality clearly. To know where we've been and where we're going. And one of several implications for this light of the world When we know and follow the Logos of God, Jesus, the light of the world, the implication is we have hope. And hope is always centered on the future. It's always centered on future good. That's what hope is by definition. A confidence that something good is coming. The Apostle Peter said it well in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 13. He says, set your hope completely completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope, the Christian's hope, shining bright out there in the future is that someday Jesus Christ is coming back, the light of the world. He's coming back to bring salvation to all who know him and to establish his eternal kingdom, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, we all would like to know the future, wouldn't we, to some extent? We maybe don't want to know all of it, but we'd like to know, wouldn't we? I mean, what will tomorrow bring? What will 2024 bring to our lives? What will happen with my health, my finances, my employment? What about the dangers my children and grandchildren will face in the future? In a way, we want light to shine on our path to show us that, oh, it's going to be okay. We want hope. And Jesus, as the light of the world, doesn't, doesn't give us the specifics of tomorrow's events. But actually, the light shines farther into the future, into eternity, and tells us it's going to be all right. In fact, it's going to be better than all right. It's going to be glorious if you know him. He gives us a sure hope. The light of the world gives us a sure hope in the midst of many, many uncertainties of this life. So Jesus is the Logos of God, the creator, the life, the light. And fifth, here in chapter 1, there's others, but fifth is, he's the Lamb of God. This is a name ascribed to him by the prophet John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 29. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Six weeks ago in our series on the book of Exodus, I talked at length about this, and so if you want more, go back to my sermon on November 29th. Check it out at stormberg.org. I can't repeat that entire sermon, but let me summarize a few key things that relate to this Lamb of God. We talked about God is holy. He's pure. He's, there's an otherliness about Him. And we, in great contrast, in, in a tremendous contrast, are unholy, impure. We are in darkness. And the consequences of that gap that's between us is death. 
It's eternal separation from God. The wages of sin, the New Testament says, is death. The Old Testament says the same thing. And we're faced then with only two options. One is we die for our own sins at the hand of a just and holy God. Or two, we receive mercy at the hands of a compassionate, loving God. By means of a substitute, someone or something, in the case of the Old Testament, it was a lamb or a goat or a bull, something died in your place. It's called substitutionary atonement. Someone has to pay for your sins and mine. And God, in mercy and great love, has offered His Son as the substitute Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. And there's many implications of this, but one of them that I love is that this Lamb of God takes away the guilt of our sin, our true guilt before God. He washes that away, and we now are at peace with God. I love Romans 5.1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified, we have been declared righteous through faith. And that means believe. Those words are synonymous. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Peace with God. That is a beautiful word, isn't it? The hostility between us and God is gone. The tension is gone. And we can exhale if we know Christ, if we've believed in Him. As Romans 5.1 says, if we've given our faith, we, by faith we've believed in this one, we can know we're, we're okay. We're more than okay with God. And we can rejoice in the mighty work of the Lamb of God. And peace can reign in our souls. We don't have time to look at the many other titles and names given to Jesus. But let me just give you a few. The living water in John 4. Jesus describes himself as the living water who quenches the deepest soul thirst deep down. John 6, he's the bread of life who, who, who gives nourishment, satisfies that inner hunger of our starving, malnourished souls. John 10, he's the good shepherd who feeds and guides and protects us in our helpless state as sheep. John 14, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He guides us out of our world of lostness and darkness and deception into real truth. And there are so many other names in the scriptures. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Jesus commanded us to follow him in Matthew 4. He commanded his disciples. He commands us. So what does that mean? Again, if I were to sit down with, with you for coffee and ask you, are you a Christian? What would you say? Or if a friend of yours over coffee asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Could you explain it? Do you know? My prayer is that these names and titles would help us 
to understand in our own souls and help others to understand what life is all about, what Christianity is, who this Logos of God really is. The answer to all the philosophers' questions and speculations over the centuries. To be a Christian is first we follow someone, we believe in someone, a person, not a force. We follow this Logos of God, the very expression of the words and hearts and thoughts of God. And he is far beyond all other so-called gods ever invented by man or by the devil. And the first and, form, the first and most foundational response to Jesus is in that one word, believe. Back to John 1. Verse 11, he came, Jesus, this Logos, came to that which was his own, his own people, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. His own people, the people of Israel, by and large, did not receive him. They rejected him. They pushed him away. But John says, anyone who does receive him, who welcomes him, who embraces him, who believes in him, who, and that just word means to trust, it's the same word as faith, anyone who believes in him, they are given the right to be the children, the sons and daughters of the living God adopted into his family. What a privilege, what a glory. And we believe and we, we repent. That means we turn up 180 degrees from our dark, lost ways, our rejection of God, our, the insistence that we're going to live lives for our purposes instead of God's. And we turn towards God. As Jesus said to Martha, the one who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he is the, the logos of God, the very word and message and expression of God? Do you believe he's the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of your soul, and he's made you for his purposes? You believe he's the Lamb of God who alone can take away your sin and the light of the world who can shine into the darkness of your heart? Eternity hangs in the balance with our answers to those questions. So let me finish up with giving you some homework. You didn't know this was school, but you're going to get homework at the end of the year. And you have 21 days to work on this homework, okay? Here it is. Read the Gospel of John. One chapter a day. There's 21 chapters. Tomorrow's the first. If you want to start today, you get a bonus point. You get an extra day. But if you start tomorrow, the way to begin the new year, read one chapter. Do it over the mealtime. If you have a family, read, read with them. And look for the names and titles, who Jesus really is, what he said, what he did, what he claimed. So that you could understand what Christianity really is. You could answer, am I a Christian? And if your friend asked you, you could help them to understand what it really, what our Christianity 
really is all about, that we would believe in him and follow him. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, you are the invisible God, unseen by us and yet very, very real. And your reality is powerfully and clearly expressed in your Son, the Lagos, the Word of God. Would you help us in this next month, in this brand new year starting tomorrow, would you help us to see you more clearly? to understand you better? Would you help us to see that you are life and light and bread and water for our souls? Help us to engage, to believe in your Son, to follow him who came to give us life forever and ever. That a year from now, on December 31st of 2024, we could say, I know God better. I love him more than I did a year ago. And help us also, Lord, to understand who you are, to understand this gospel so well that we could explain it to others that they might find the very logos of God. In the name of that logos, the word of God, we pray. Amen.